Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with a very special guest and friend of the firm, Fabrice Grinda. Fabrice, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Okay, Fabrice, we're, you're here to talk about marketplaces. You've been uh, building and investing in marketplaces for, for over two decades now. Why, why don't we start with sort of a, a backdrop and an introduction? Uh, and I'll, I'll start by asking you to sort of chronicle the evolution of marketplaces as, as, as you've seen it over, over the last couple of decades. And it's a big question. You wrote a post about this in 2014. And of course, even since then, a lot has changed. But how has building and investing marketplaces changed uh, since you started doing it you know, two decades ago? Yeah, so the first marketplace I came across was, was eBay, basically. And that was like in the mid to late 90s. And in, in, it was really love at first sight in the sense that as an economist by formation, and this is what I studied at Princeton, I loved the idea that you could use marketplaces to bring transparency and liquidity to different markets. And so the idea that, you know, if you go to the, the, the garage sale that's uh, across the street, you're not going to be in a position to find what you're looking for. And if you're trying to sell, it's unlikely you're going to find a buyer. But if you create a national and maybe an international marketplace, that's way more likely to happen. It unlocks it a massive amount of liquidity and value and transparency and discovery. And of course, that was the original marketplace, but, you know, perhaps alongside Craigslist. But things have evolved really dramatically. And there, I really think, especially in the last decade, there have been three major evolutions. So the first evolution that happens, and that's kind of what I uh, alluded to in the 2014 post, though I've written an updated post in last year about like where we are today, is the verticalization of marketplaces. So people started realizing, okay, on Craigslist or eBay, you can find a little bit of everything. But if you create a vertical specific job site that does the job better, because it's specific for that category, you're going to have a better experience. And the prototypical original example of that was StubHub. You could buy and sell tickets on, on eBay and Craigslist, but if you have something like StubHub where you have the seating chart and you have uh, integration with the e-ticket providers, you, know, you have verification of the authenticity of the, of the tickets, it's a way better experience than what you might find otherwise. Where think of Airbnb. In a way, subletting existed on Craigslist before Airbnb existed, but we they didn't have a calendar, they didn't have payments, they didn't have uh, reviews, and so the user experience was really broken. It was uh, full of fraud, and the category was really expanded. I mean, Airbnb essentially created a category that used to be like sub a billion a year, and now it's tens of billions a year. And that verticalization has continued, and it's happened not just in the product and services categories. So. It's happened in every major category. So you have uh, eBay being verticalized. You have something like Reverb, which is a music instrument marketplace. And they're doing like 800 million a year in GMB. They were acquired by Etsy last year. You have the thumbtacks of the world, which are uh, the home services type companies or home advisor. They're being verticalized uh, by companies like Block Renovation, which basically create a much better experience for renovating your bathroom and, uh, and eventually your kitchen. You have Companies like Upwork in the remote work category that allow you to hire remote workers for almost everything and anything that are being verticalized by companies like uh, maybe TopTile for, for programmers or Comet in France for programmers. 
And so the definition I'd use, by the way, for a horizontal marketplace, is really a multi-category marketplace that covers many different things. And that could be in the job category. So Deed would be a kind of a horizontal job category or in monster.com. It could be in products, the like Ebays or the Craigslist of the world, uh, but it could be in food, like Uber Eats, I would describe uh, as a horizontal player in food, given that they, they offer multiple, ty- multiple types of, food, of cuisine. But even that is being verticalized. Uh, you have a company like Slice in the market out there, which is a pizza delivery, food, deli- food ordering and food delivery app uh, that is doing really, really well. And, and what's interesting is if you ask me, what is it that I believe today in 2020 that most VCs don't believe is that verticalization is both only at its beginning, it's, it's infancy, it's going to continue, and the players in it are going to do really well. Uh, people think, oh, but you know, these verticals, they're very niche, they can't be very large from a market perspective. But, you know, think of it differently. Like, Pizza is a $43 billion a year market in the U.S. That's more than enough of a time. Now, what is it that VCs believe? Most of them are going to tell you, well, you have Uber Eats and Seamless Grubhub and DoorDash and Caviar. It's incredibly competitive. Doesn't make sense to have a vertical. I mean, all these guys are losing money hands over fists. It's a bloodbath. But that's because they put themselves in the shoes of the consumer in this case. If you actually put yourselves in the shoes of Luigi, the pizza owner, uh, you realize that there, there are needs that he has that are not being filled by the existing incumbents. So the way the market, the pizza market is structured in the U.S. is about a third that's Domino's, Pizza Hut, and Papa John's. And 85% of those people, people there order online. And they, they have a big R&D budget, and they have online ordering. But the 300,000 independent pizzerias that are owned by Luigi, or the Luigi's of the world, you know, half of them don't have a website. The vast majority don't allow online ordering. And so what Slice figured out is if you go to them and you say, hey, we're going to create your website for you. We're going to create an app where you can order. We're going to pick up the phone for you. Um, That's what you don't need to pick up the phone because what you'd like to do is cook pizza. And by the way, the future of work, as I think of it, is people will do the job that they're meant to be doing and everything else will be outsourced. And so it kind of falls in both in the vertical marketplace category, but also in the future of work category. And and so by doing so, they've created a business that now does hundreds of millions of GMV. Or same thing, we're in a company called TCG Player. It's a magic, the gathering marketplace. You were like, wait wow. a minute, how could that be interesting? That's It's a tiny market. Well, first of all, magic, the gathering is a lot bigger than you might think. Uh, and the what, what happened is they basically, the guy was a, uh, owned a, a, a comic book store. And as an owner of a comic book store, the point of sale systems that are available didn't manage all the different SKUs that were available in the market. There are millions of SKUs in Magic Gathering. So he built his own and he uploaded all of his inventory there and he managed a store and he did it better. And then he's like, okay, maybe I should sell this to other comic book stores. But then he's like, you know, if I build a SaaS business, there's not that many comic book stores, even if I charge a hundred bucks a month, so I could be a big business. So instead, he gave it away for free. And all the comic book stores started uploading all their inventory. So all of a sudden, he had all the inventory of all the comic book stores in the world. And he's like, hey, I'm going to create a marketplace. And if it sells, I'll take 10%. And lo and behold, in 2019, I don't know exactly how much they did in GMV, but like probably upwards of $150 million in GMV. And so these businesses that seem small, if you provide an extraordinary user experience to at least one side of the marketplace, and, I, I, and ideally both, you can actually 
have much better economics. You, you don't need have a, you have a very low customer acquisition cost. I mean, Slice doesn't pay for the end users; they're just existing customers in these area that convert online. And you could and you could be massively profitable and ultimately be big. And and so yes, you're not going to build a hundred billion dollar company like that, but you're going to build extraordinary products with loyal, dedicated fan bases with amazing economics. They're going to be great. So that's big one trend. Marketplaces have been verticalizing. They're becoming ever more sophisticated, and the user experience is ever improving. Which I guess crosses into the second big trend. So the big wording uh, that people have been saying is like managed marketplaces. The thing is that term has come to mean everything and anything. The one thing I did observe, and the one trend that I, I guess we would invest in that we'd love, is when the marketplace picks the supplier for you. So imagine the old the old school marketplace. I go to Thumbtack, I need an I say I need a plumber, 300 of them apply and you need to do the work of sorting through the plumbers. It's a pain in the neck, right? Or I go to I go to Upwork and I want to hire a a PHP developer. Uh, and same thing, hundreds of them apply and I need to sort through them, I need to interview them and I need to select them. That that me- methodology from a technical parlance perspective is called double commit, where both the supply side and the demand side need to interact with each other, need to pick each other, and agree to transaction. Um, it's easy to create a site like that. It's easy to have listings, but actually there's a lot of friction in getting a transaction to happen, right? Or if you're in Craigslist, you already saw an item and hundreds of people contact you and then you need to be in person, et cetera. The marketplaces I love the best these days or the the marketplace pick models, meaning the marketplace picks your supplier. The marketplace knows who is available, who has availability in your neighborhood would be the best match for you. So think of it on Uber. When you when you say you want to go from point A to point B, you don't pick your driver. Uber picks the driver for you. And by the way, it's not the drivers who pick themselves. It's Uber that, that sends a notification to a driver saying, hey, this ride is available for you. Do you want it? So it's the marketplace that picks. And now, Again, what is it that I believe that most VCs don't believe in? Most VCs will say, okay, this is great for commodity-type jobs. I like an Uber driver where any driver can do the job. That You cannot do this for highly skilled things from uh, programmers to, to general contractors, et cetera. And what I posit, and we're trying to prove with our thesis, is that's not true. You can, If a company has a selection process that they can use to select people, which obviously they do, we can replicate that. And arguably, because we have, we're doing it at much larger scale for many more people in a specific vertical, we can do a much better job at it. And so we've invested in many of these marketplace pick models. So we're investors in a company called Miro. It's a photographer marketplace. So Airbnb says, I need a photographer at Eric's place uh, next Tuesday at 2 p.m. because he wants to list this place. And Miro picks the photographer. And by the way, again, thinking about the future of work is, what does the photographer want to do? He wants to take photos. What does he not want to do? Create a website, do marketing, find clients, do invoicing, do post-processing, editing, retouching, and sending the images. Miro will do all that for the photographer. And so even though they take 50% of, uh, of a take rate, the photographer is happy, Airbnb is happy, and Miro is, of course, very happy. Same is true of a company like Rev.com. Rev.com is a transcription marketplace. So let's say that you wanted to transcribe our conversation today. Um, you can just send the recording to them in, in their app and you pay like 10 cents of that. I think it might have increased prices like 12 cents or something like that. You don't pick the transcriber. Rev.com picks the transcriber and then they, they send you the text. And they also take a pretty high take rate, but because they provide tools 
to the transcribers, everyone's happy. And also it allows the, the transcribers to do their job better. And so this marketplace pick model, well, the marketplace picks everything. They pick your general contractor, your plumber, your you know, your Uber driver, et cetera, is definitely a massive trend that we're following and investing in. And we're still at the very beginning of it. What, what people objected to it in marketplaces was the amount of work that it took. And if you went to Amazon, you're buying a product, everything worked very beautifully, seamlessly in one click. Though in many cases, Amazon is also itself a marketplace. So if you do enough of the work and you, and you can hide it effectively, uh, you can create basically experiences for it end users where it looks as though the marketplace is the provider uh, of the service, even though it actually is a marketplace model. And these, this way you can build the company a lot faster. Now, the key there, the key success factor in these marketplaces is rather different than the key success factor in normal marketplaces because you need to really highly curate your supply. Because you are picking the supply for on behalf of the demand, you need to pick the very best providers and match effectively. So that's really a key. And if you do it well, you're, you're having a good job. Then the third big trend, which is maybe only emerging since the, the last three, four, five years, is B2B marketplaces. That internet took the consumer world by storm. And you ended up having these extraordinary experiences and extraordinary sites and everything from Facebook to Airbnb to Google to Uber. And when you look at the way most companies still transact, especially the large scale companies, it's still a lot of like Rolodex and Excel spreadsheets and, and basically relationships. There's no online pricing, there's no online ordering, nothing's been automated. And so we've been investing in B2B marketplaces for, that are either in the market itself, so we're a company like Node, which is a chemicals marketplace, um, or we're investing in companies that are in the supply chain of an industry. So for instance, we're investors in RigUp, which is a oil services worker or an oil worker marketplace where the oil services companies and the oil companies can hire contract laborers like a welder to work on it. And if you think about it, actually, this is like, uh, the trifecta. It's a vertical job marketplace that is marketplace pick in B2B. So it hits like all three of the current theses. And so if I look at what FJ Labs is investing in today, it's that's the those are the three theses uh, in, independently. And we're still at the very beginning of this. I mean, last year we invested in 124 startups wow. and the vast majority of them are marketplaces. So many people thought, oh, it's the end, you know, marketplaces are all done, et cetera. It's completely wrong. Not only are we at the very beginning of the internet revolution, only 15% of commerce is online. The largest components of GDP have not been digitalized at all from healthcare to education to public services to construction. Marketplaces are only at the very beginning. And these are the three current trends, three current theses. And yeah, and there's a lot to be done. And by the way, I actually published on my blog an article on I don't, I, in 2019 on the latest trends in marketplaces, where not only do I present these three, I also go through what's going on in food, what's going on in labor marketplaces, what's going on in, in, in funding or lending marketplaces, what's going on in you know every major vertical real estate, et cetera, et cetera. Totally. It, it, it's a fantastic uh, post. And you, you gave a, a talk on it too that, uh, that, that we'll link to in the show notes. So, so there's a lot to, uh, lot to get into. There's a fantastic overview. Maybe to, to zoom out and to close the loop on sort of the historical perspective, you had a post where you sort of said that the different phases were horizontal, then we went to vertical, then vertical transactions, uh, then end-to-end vertical uh, transactional. Uh, Andreessen uh, uh, Horowitz has a post where it says they went from listing eras to the unbundled list, Craigslist era to the Uber for X era to the managed marketplace era, to whatever's next. 
do you have commentary on, on either of those or how that's evolved? Yeah, I mean, so it, I guess the horizontals went from listing-based, so you would put a listing, that would be monster.com or, or Craigslist, to transactional, where you can actually buy online, and that would have been StubHub, eBay, Airbnb, to the verticals of those, uh, I guess StubHub would be a vertical uh, of those, to then the managed marketplaces, which meant they intermediated the transaction in some way, shape, or form. But to me, there's subcategories of the three theses that I'm investing in. So yes, the, the, it's correct historical analysis in it of how marketplaces evolved. And today, you have elements of all these in the three theses that I'm managing. So when I'm describing you know, marketplaces or becoming marketplace pick, it means they're mostly going from listing-based to ones where the, market, where the marketplace is picking the supply. Uh, and, and in fact, there was an intermediate, I could have argued there was an intermediate step between uh, listing base to, I guess, demand pick, the buyer picks his supplier, that, that, to now the marketplace picks the supplier for you. Uh, so no, I think all of these are correct. Uh, it's just where are we today? I think the verticalization is continuing and accelerating, including things that are considered niche, a la the Magic the Gathering. And, and um, the, the listing based ones, I think, were largely will have to evolve if they were, if they were going to survive in a world of like higher quality experience marketplace big verticals. Now, the reason they're not going to disappear completely is they have a CAC of zero, right? Like, so Craigslist customer acquisition cost and supply demand is essentially zero. So for your marketplace to work, you need your unit economics to work, which means you need your net contribution margin per customer uh, over the next 18 months, let's say to be 3x your fully loaded CAC. And there's some categories where the average order value is so low or low enough and where the, the recurrence of transactions is so low that it probably does not make sense to have these beautiful, extraordinary vertical marketplaces exist because you cannot make the economics work. Uh, you know, I, I think it's kind of why SHIP disappeared, or I don't know if they disappeared, but didn't do particularly well because low average order value, not enough recurrence, or you know, maybe a locksmith marketplace doesn't make sense because the average order is low, it's pretty expensive to acquire the supply and the demand, and how often do you really lock yourself out of your place? Maybe not that often. And so I, they're not going to disappear, but the highest valued categories will be will be verticalized and and, and great experiences are going to be created. Uh, so the market is evolving. And actually, if you look at the Craigslist traffic, I think it's it's been down like 40 percent over the last you know four or five years. Though partly because they've had to close down a number of their personals category. You're you're big on verticalization. Does that mean you're dubious on on building horizontal marketplaces today? Is it a matter of timing thing, or are you just in general more excited about verticalization than like would you have passed on Thumbtack? Are you dubious on these types of horizontal businesses or, or is it a timing thing or is it a structure thing? No, no, it's more a timing thing, right? Like when Thumbtack was created, there was no horizontal to do this. It made sense. And by the way, if you can win the horizontal, you create more value than if you win the vertical, right? So if you have to choose, you want to build the, the general horizontal marketplace. You get more users, you have ultimately a lower CAC, you, you, and that's a total natural monopoly. So, but once you have an incumbent that has liquidity where they, the and they have scale and network effects, it's hard to break in, right? UfferUp and LetGo have been trying to break in the Craigslist business with not as great success as might have been ex- expected, partly because they're competing against each other instead of being one company, but also because despite the horrible user experience, Craigslist works, right? They have liquidity. At the end of the day, in these businesses, user experience is less important than liquidity. And because Craigslist is liquidity, people still use them despite the horrible user experience, the fact they don't moderate content, et cetera. And so the 
no, if you want to, if I could, and the opportunity is there, I want to build the horizontal and I want to own the horizontal or invest in the horizontal. And, and, and that's the biggest outcome possible. And by the way, if you're a really smart player as a horizontal, you then verticalize. OLX, which is my, the company I built, which is a 5,000 employees, 350 million unique visitors a month, which is really Craigslist 5.0, you know, for the rest of the world is what Craigslist would be if they were mobile, uh, moderated all their content didn't have any personal murders, prostitution, spam, and scam, and actually cared about the outcomes for the users. And that company, as you know, as they have 350 million uniques a month, it's extraordinary. And then once we've won the... So the strategy there, when the horizontal and the CDC transactions, products for sale, so used goods for sale, once we won that, we then launched CDC cars, which allowed us to launch BDC cars and win that. Then we would launch CDC real estate then we launched BDC real estate, and often we launched either services or jobs. And so, and now we didn't win everywhere in every country, but in countries like Russia, we ended up winning every vertical and every horizontal. But you start by the horizontal and then you use it as a launching pad because your cost structure or your customer acquisition cost is lower because you're in a category where people are using you every month. You launch the verticals. And so if you do a really good job, the thing is in the US specifically, we've had two players that have been largely incompetent. You've had Craigslist which has not improved the UX UI, has not verticalized, has not created better experiences. And eBay, which has been you know, pretty ineffectively managed because they've been trying to be an Amazon competitor, even though it's interesting. Like everyone in the world knows they're not going to beat Amazon at, at Amazon. Yeah. And yet they're investing all this money in like selling new goods. 80% of goods on eBay these days are new. That makes no sense. Now, of course, there are a bit long tail, Chinese goods, somewhat different from Amazon, but it's not... They've strayed away from the core. So they've actually never verticalized properly. They were never, but in the other countries around the world, the horizontals have totally gone vertical. The verticals also, they're easier to build, but the network effects are not as strong because especially in the marketplace model, you have logarithmic network effects, meaning let's say you're, you're, you're an Uber in a given city and your wait time is 10 minutes. Well, if you increase the supply enough that your wait time is four minutes, that's a massive increase in value. But increasing the supply more to go from four-minute wait time to three-minute wait time is not that much more. And because you don't need that many suppliers to cover any given market, the barrier to entry is somewhat lower. And so whereas in classifieds or auctions, it's total natural monopoly. You have one player that wins and has all the liquidity. It's lost true in these marketplace spec models. It's true in the verticals that are not marketplace spec. But as a result... Uh, no, if I could if I could own the horizontal, I'd own the horizontal, and then I'd verticalize. After having won the horizontal, I'd verticalize. So I'd rather be home advisor than block renovation. I'd rather be eBay than whatever um, than Reverb. But then you should be doing a good job at verticalizing, which these incumbents have not done. It's just I don't see any obvious horizontals that we can launch here. I mean, obviously, I've been I was involved with Letgo. We tried to attack Craigslist with a, a lot of money and 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 a much, much, much better product at every level. And and it's done well, but it's not completely, it's not disrupted Craigslist. It hasn't had the outcome that we had expected when we launched. Yeah. Uh, do you see uh, uh, LinkedIn similar to Craigslist, I guess just has such a, you know, first mover advantage? Absolutely. I mean, when I think, yeah, LinkedIn is a, is a marketplace for jobs, essentially, and it's a it's horizontal. And many people have tried, and it's interesting because it kind of got there indirectly, right? It built a, a social network for business in a way that then became a job site. And that repos- being the repository of people's profiles actually gave the, allowed them to become that. Many, 
clearly there's a trend uh, for jobs to verticalize, right? We have, we're, we're, we're seeing a lot of sites going after uh, hiring developers, you know, from hired uh, onwards, vetry, et cetera. We're seeing a lot of sites, especially in the staffing categories that are going after the vertical. So we're in Trusted Health, which is a nursing marketplace. Of course, we're in RigUp, which is uh, the oil uh, the oil worker marketplace. The thing is, most of the outside of staffing, uh, and staffing is unique for a variety of reasons, but it's only a small percentage of overall employment in the U.S. It's like 6%. Outside of staffing, job sites have not been great businesses. Uh, and obviously, you're going to tell me, wait a minute, I look at the Indeed PL or whatever, ZipRecruiter, and they're doing really well. The thing is, they don't seem to have network effects because a business that has network effects is one where over time, the your customer acquisition, the more users you have, the more it attracts other users, and your customer acquisition costs go down. The, the problem with, with job sites is that if they do their job well, they find you a job. And so you kind of lose them as a customer, and if and you need to reacquire them next time. And so often the job sites look like outsourced marketing companies, meaning, yes, maybe the large employer, you know, Walmart, or maybe a small employer, whatever, Luigi's Pizzeria, could put ads on their own and Google, Facebook, et cetera, to actually attract uh, candidates, but they're not really good at it. So you do the job better for them, but you're an arbitrage. You're basically buying ads more effectively than they would, and you're and you're reselling these candidates. And these businesses are good, but they're not great. They're not. They don't have amazing network effects. And so most of them have not built a LinkedIn. So LinkedIn is great because they have true network effects. The only job site that that I think really has network effects and it, and is proving my thesis that most job sites are actually outsourced. Uh, outsource recruit marketing companies and outsource lead gen candidate companies is RigUp because RigUp has become the de facto standard for where if you're in that industry, this is where your profile lives. You're not on LinkedIn. This is where people look at your reviews, your experience, et cetera. Um, and so it is doable, but it requires real deep sector expertise and in a category that's large enough where it makes sense. And so, yeah, LinkedIn, definitely people should try to verticalize it. And I think RigUp is a great example of how you can do it. If the, if the idea is that every horizontal company should also then verticalize once they dominate, is it similar that every vertical company, once they own the vertical, should try to horizontalize or, or go across? No. No, no, because you, no, but they should go to coin joint verticals, right? So TCG Player, the Magic the Gathering Marketplace is now into Pokemon. And the fact that Pokemon, I think, is 30% of their GMV. Reverb, sort of music and guitars, you know, became music instruments writ large. Uh, so, and, and in fact, you think of Etsy, Etsy bought Reverb. <clears throat> so it started entering another, another vertical. So I would say go in coin joint verticals to increase TAM. Don't go horizontal. Uh, that, that's a recipe for disaster and for losing your identity. Totally. And so if, if, if the why now for, for going vertical is that there's already you know, a bunch of big horizontal incumbents, what, what's the why now for the marketplace pick a strategy or the, or the B2B approach? As in, why wasn't the why now in, 20, in 2014 or in 2024 or 2025? Yeah, I mean, in order to do marketplace pick, you need to have basically a, a matching algorithm that's really, really good. So you need AI to be at a point where you can actually replicate the recruiting methods of different verticals. The In B2B, it's really, frankly, it should have been 10 years ago. It's just businesses are conservative and move extraordinarily slowly. But the why now is like, 
uh, it'll never be. It, it, it's a massive comparative advantage if you have if you've digitized your procurement, if you digitize your your online sales, your your supply chain, and your competitors have not. You can extract efficiency. You can you can sort you can source of lower costs. I mean, it it, it makes and, and you now have the examples of it having happened in the consumer world. Of course, there it's harder because you need to create a behavior change. And so the people, the type of entrepreneurs that succeed in these B2B marketplaces are people that come from the industry but want to change it, but have buy-in and are connected well enough. Because it's, it's less likely to be the 25-year-old Sanford grad who decides he wants to build a dump truck driver marketplace. It's more likely someone who actually came from that industry and were, believe it or not, in a dump truck driver marketplace. And, and the thing is, you and I... You know, coming given the backgrounds we have, respectively, I worked at McKinsey. I was an economist, and I, it, 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 I didn't even know this market existed. It's a thirty-seven billion a year market, and so I guess the next why now is a lot of these businesses. Let's say, let's say, mom and pop, family-owned businesses used to be owned by people by by boomers who are not very tech literate. But as these companies are now being handed over to the next generation, the millennials, they are completely tech savvy. And so the idea that they're going to be running the construction firm with actually not having online ordering of underlying items, without having uh, online visibility of like project management, et cetera, is, is, is nonsensical. They are, they, they're tax savvy and digital, and they want to bring that digitalization to, to their companies. And so it's true whether you're a millennial inheriting or coming into the family business or whether you're the next generation of leaders in the corporate world coming in. You know, the, the number of CEOs in their 60s, 70s, and 80s who still are not like dealing with the email, you know, have their secretary print their email with them or not super tech savvy is mind-bogglingly large. But as the leaders who are currently in their 30s and 40s um, or 50s are coming in into the leadership positions of the larger companies, do I think they're going to start digitizing their, their companies? Absolutely. And the amount of which it's been done is a astoundingly small. Totally. You, you, you're, you're a thesis-driven uh, investor. And so what types of marketplace businesses are, are you not interested in looking at or not interested in investing in? Even within your thesis, even within the ones that are B2B marketplace vertical and, and ones that are outside. I presume you're doing some consumer marketplaces still, correct? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, TCG Player, we didn't do that long ago. The, um, I, I, I talked to them for the first time maybe three years ago, and, and I, I li- they were vertical, but they had no real tech. And I'm like, look, great, but you know, I don't see a moat. Uh, and, and to his credit, the founder went in, spent all his money, built an amazing product, and 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 basically locked up the supply, and then I convinced me to invest. So I know we do. We still do a lot, a fair amount of consumer because right? I, I still think you can create amazing consumer experiences. I mean, like for instance, the vertical food space. We're in Chaobas, which is a Chinese food uh, ordering uh, app, and they're doing really well. Now, to what would we not invest in? Well, and what's the criteria of, of, of like what what makes something that you would not invest in? So we are thesis driven, and we would like you to meet our thesis. Though of the four criteria, actually, let's take a step back. The way we evaluate a company, and then we can, we can talk about how we get companies and sources, et cetera, but the way we evaluate companies, we have four criteria. And the first three need to be collectively and exhaustively true. And these criteria are, one, do we like the team? And I'll, and I'll explain exactly what I mean in a second by that. Two, do we like the business? And I'm also going to explain what I mean by that. And number three, do we like the deal terms? And I'll explain what I think are reasonable deal terms, different valuations. And then number four, so these three need to be collectively true. If any of them is not true, 
I mean, if you have an amazing business, but we don't like the team, we're not going to do it. If you have an amazing business, an amazing team, but the valuation is too high, we're not going to do it. And if the valuation is reasonable, the business is amazing. Uh, uh, no, the team is amazing, the valuation is reasonable, but we don't like the business, we're not going to do it. And then number four, do we? Is it? it does it match our thesis? So the, the last one, the reality is 70% of what we do is thesis-driven. 30% is like, other cool things that we think are cool and that obviously evolves over time there's a period where we're doing d2c brands there's a period you, you know and also if, if you've been successful for us in the past we will back you no matter what you do regardless of it of anything and so the it, it, it given that we've backed at this point we've invested in almost 600 companies and many of the founders we've had 191 exits many of these founders are at, at it again uh and so we, we will back them no matter what and so it leads to a number of investments outside of thesis. Now, the three evaluation criteria. So one, do we like the team? Now, every VC in the world will tell you, I invest in extraordinary talent and amazing teams. The thing is, what does that mean? What's an amazing founder? Uh, For us, it's really someone who exhibits three traits. One, someone who's an amazing storyteller. And storytelling skills are absolutely key because if you can actually weave a super compelling story, you're going to attract more capital at a higher valuation. You're going to get more PR, more business partnerships, and you're going to attract uh, better talent to your company. But that's not enough because if that's all you have, you may build a very, you may raise a lot of capital, but you may not build a very profitable, successful business. So number two, we want people that are numbers driven and that are quantitative and You'd be surprised, but the, the Venn diagram between people that are numbers-driven and also great storytellers is actually rather small. We have amazingly numbers-driven people that are analytical and understand the union economics extremely well, but they actually can't tell sell a story, so they can't raise money. I mean, we really want both of those to be, to be true. And then three, people that have demonstrated grit and tenacity in their background. And in the course of our one-hour conversation with me, at least, when I'm pushing really hard, that they actually hold their own and and, and are willing to say that they don't know, uh, as opposed to crumble. And I've had potential founders obviously crumble in the course of that. My digging into their unit economics, and that's the case. You're not ready for the difficulties um, you're going to face as a founder because me questioning your assumptions is nothing relative to the difficulties you're going to face. So that's one. Number two, do we like the business? Now, do we like the business as a number of variables? What is your total addressable market size? Uh, What is the business model, et cetera? But there's one thing we care above all else, and it's what are your unit economics? The... For us, good unit economics or a business where you recoup your fully loaded CAC on a net contribution margin basis in the first six months of the business, where you 3x your CAC on 18 months, and ideally, you don't know what your LTV to CAC ratio is because you have negative churn. So maybe after 18 months, you've lost 50% of the customers, but the remaining 50% or buying more and more and more, such that maybe your LTV to CAC is 10 to 1 or 21. In fact, you don't know. Now, most of the companies we invest in, because we're seed and pre-seed investors for the most part, I mean, we we do every stage, but we're 65% seed, pre-seed, 25% AB, and 10% late stage. Most of the companies have not been live for that long. So, or or some are pre-launch. So if you're pre-launch, I want you to be able to articulate where your theoretical unit economics are going to be, but not just based on like, oh, I'm putting my, my thumb up in the air and like guessing it. It's like, oh, we've done unit testing on limited marketing budget and uh, the CPC was uh, $1, $1, uh, $1. And 10% of the people who signed up uh, 
uh, who came to the site, signed up saying they were interested. That's a $10 CAC. And we think 10% of those will, 10% CPA to that point. We think 10% of those will buy. It'll be $100 customer acquisition costs. On the, uh, on the flip side, we know that the industry average order value is $300. And on that, we're taking 20%. And on that, we have a 66% margin. So 20% of $300 is $60. And you have a 66% margin. You're making $40. And we know from the industry average that people are buying this, you know, four times a year. Uh, and so you're recouping the CAC after nine months, something like that. So, and again, I, and you better be telling me industry averages. You can, I can't, if you're trying to pitch me that you're going to be way above the average for whatever reason, I'm less likely to believe you. Now, there's another case where I'm willing to back you if your economics are not there, if you have a compelling reason as to why with scale you're going to get there. So maybe you're telling me, hey, my, I'm currently doing one delivery per hour and my delivery guy is costing me 15 bucks an hour. Uh, that said, with scale, I'm going to be able to deliver it three times an hour, and that's very reasonable because of XYZ, which shows that this is something I'm going to reach very easily with a little bit more scale, and then my delivery cost is five bucks per hour, at which point my union economics work. So either union economics are there, union economics are going to get there with scale, or they're theoretical, but they, they theoretically make sense, and you can argument it very, very well. And I'm very, very unit economic driven. So if you launch and you don't have a business model, you don't know how you're going to monetize, I'm not going to fund you. If you launch, and you may have massive TMV, massive traction, et cetera, but if you, you don't know your unit economics, and you don't know, and you don't know even when you're going to monetize, I'm going to pass. And I have passed on many companies that, ended up doing really really well it's just that when they came to see me uh they didn't they had not they didn't have that figured out it's just that if you invest in things that don't have business models many more most of them will fail and i i it's not the way i i I operate to date we've made money in around half of our investments because we've been very disciplined both on that and on valuation which brings me to point number three we want the valuation to be reasonable now obviously reasonable means I have a model in the back of my head of what is a appropriate, an appropriate level of valuation for the appropriate level of traction. Now, there's massive variation in the numbers I'm about to give you uh, because if you're a second-time founder and you've done really well the first time, you're going to command a higher valuation. If you are growing faster than average, you're going to command a higher valuation. But these days, uh, for the most part, we're seeing if you're pre-launch and you're raising a 1 million pre-seed round, the average pre-money valuation is going to be like five. If you're four to five, let's say, if you're a first-time founder, if you're if you're a post-launch and you're raising your seed round and you're doing 150k a month in GMV, and that's where the business where the 15% take rate, you're going to raise three at eight for your seed round. And with that, I expect you to get to 650k a month in GMV in the next 18 months. And you're going to raise your A and you're going to raise um, seven at 25 posts. And with that, you get a 2.5 million a month in GMV and you're going to raise your B at 20 at 50 pre or 70 posts. And now, again, this is the mean. The standard deviation is really wide because uh, you, the best companies that grow faster than that, they, they, their A looks like a B. And your A, you raise 10 at 30, or you may even raise 20 at, 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 at 50. Um, and there's so much capital available in the later stages that if you're growing really quickly and you have a compelling story, some of these things might you might bypass. But this is the mean for most deals, especially in the vertical marketplaces, because many of the VCs don't believe they can necessarily be big enough for to 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 warrant being putting so much capital into them. 
But all of these three things need to be true. You need to have a reasonable valuation, good unit economics, and be an amazing team. And if that's the case and you meet our thesis, we will invest. And we'll decide in maximum two one-hour meetings. And if I'm on the call very often in one one-hour meeting, I'll decide yes, no, and why. And I'll tell you why. And, and on the deal terms, is there any science behind the, the, you know, the four or five or, or those numbers? Or is it, hey, that's what market is and that's what we think is fair? So we are not, we don't lead uh, deals. We, we, we just join other people's term sheets because we, we, we've chosen to write check sizes that don't compete with the lead VCs because we want to be friendly with all the VCs. So we share our deal, our deal flow with every VC at every stage, essentially. And that means that we can't compete with them for allocation. Uh, so we have no minimum ownership requirements, et cetera. So we're writing like 250K pre-seed, 500K seed, 800K A, 1 million Bs, and 1.7 million Cs, more or less. And the deal terms I gave you are not our justification of, the, of why they should be that. It's what market is today in the, mar- in the categories that I'm in. Yeah. And you mentioned unit economics, and, and you think a lot about that. How did you come to that, uh, that, those, that sort of specific numbers in terms of your, your, your framework? And, and what uh, mistakes do uh, marketplace founders typically make as it relates to unit economics? The, I, I came to it because I realized that when the company... So the, the, the mistake is easy. The mistake people make is they, they overvalue GMV growth. They undervalue... Uh, Net, net net revenue and, and unit economic uh, growth. Now there is a period. Of, there are periods of time where there, there's a lot of capital available and people value GMV growth. And, and Uber would not have been funded had that not been true when when they were when when, when they were fundraising, given the unit economics were underwater for a long time. But the problem is if. If you're growing in negative unit economics, frankly, it's easy, right? Like if I create a business where every time you give me a dollar, I give you $2, I can create a very big business very rapidly. The problem is that's never going to be profitable. And so you need to really make sure that you have customer acquisition channels that are, that, that are effective and scalable and profitable. And then you can make this turn ultimately at scale, create this, turn this into a very profitable business. And many of the companies we pass on it's a union economic problem. Like the union economics are too marginal and I don't see how they get there even at scale. And so scale just makes the problem bigger. So mistakes people make, they try to, they try to grow with bad union economics too quickly. I'm a very big believer in nail it before you scale it. Launch a city, nail the city. Once your union economics work in the city, you've created a playbook for owning a city, launch the second city. Make sure that your playbook works there too and keep going. But often people think that it's a land grab and so they, they launch very quickly in very many different places. But if you're growing really quickly without a playbook and unit economics are effective, you're, the only thing you're doing is increasing burn. Uh, it doesn't make sense to... Now, once you have a playbook that works, actually go for it. Like put the pedal of metal and go, and, and, go, and, 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 go, and go crush it. But I wouldn't recommend doing that in most cases because you're increasing the risk of blowing up midair. And, and, and if you have underwater union economics, at some point, if people, if, if sentiments, and, and it's not even about you, it's about the market at large turns, you're not going to be able to raise. And especially if you've raised too much money at too high a price, you basically, you know, dug, dug a grave for yourself. Uh, so that's the big fundamental mistake, I, I guess, that most people make that I would recommend avoiding. And, and some people say that don't, not to worry about the, um, or some people say it's okay to have a, a low margins 
Uh, but what's really important is to focus on the payback period because you, you could sort of make it up in, in different ways. Is, is that accurate? Well, your, your effective take rate, your effective margin is not that necessarily important. Uh, I do want you to be able to 3x your CAC in the future. But yeah, payback matters a lot because I'm way more likely to believe that you're going to have an LTV to CAC of like 4 to 1 or 5 to 1 if you're paying back in 6 months and then you're doing 2x your CAC in 12 months than if you tell me, well, I'm going to... Re- I, I'm going to recoup my CAC in three years, but don't worry. After that, it's going to be you know a straight line to the moon, and it's going to be 100 to one. Like my 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 belief in that is very low. But if you actually can recoup your CAC quickly, then and 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 the channel you're using is scalable, I definitely want to fund that. Like then I I think okay, there's something there, and we can grow. Like what I like as a VC, what I like to fund is your growth. So if you have a channel that works with good economics and all you need is more gasoline to pour in the fire and you've kind of nailed what you need to do in the back end operationally, that's exactly what I want to invest in. Regardless of stage, you know, if you're at seed, what, what, if you're at seed, all you need to do is get to the numbers against you to an A. So I, I want to fund you to go from that 150K to 650K. If you're an A, I want to get you your B. So I want to get you from 650K to 2.5 million a month. And, and, and if you're at B, then it's different because you can create optionality. You can go to profitability or you can go to a C to, go, to, keep grow, to keep growing depending on how big the market is and what makes the most sense for you. Why is the six-month number important? The what number? The, you said 3X CAC within six months. Is that what you said? No, 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 no. That, that, well, that would be amazing, but that's oh. almost never the case. No, no, recouping CAC in six oh, months. Oh, my mistake, my mistake. Uh, so you, wh- you recoup the CAC in six months, then you 3X the CAC in 18 months. Ideally, and the B2B businesses, by the way, it's a little bit different because sometimes they have a pretty long sales cycle and your salespeople cost a fair amount of money, but they churn very little. And so there, it's okay in the B2B businesses if you're, if you're, if you're recoup your if your time to recoup your CAC is low, is, is, is longer as long as your churn is low. And so if your churn is low and you can prove to me these people are almost never going to churn, and in fact, you have negative churn because you not only do you lose almost no logos, your existing customers buy more and more, then I'm happy to have somewhat different numbers. So in the B2B businesses, I'd use slightly different metrics, but yeah. What, do you, what did you believe that you no longer believe about D2C brands in terms of when you're investing in it versus, versus not anymore? Well, even in DTC brand investing, I was always numbers driven. And so I always liked the subscription businesses better than the unique product sales. So I prefer a, well, they're not really good as a product. That's the problem. But I, I prefer like, say, a contact lens subscription to a buying a mattress because it's a high AOV, but you're buying it once. It's not that. And, and it's hard to make the economics work on a one-time purchase. At least the AOV is reasonably high. And, and, and things like, and there's some things that are better suited for subscription than others, right? Like, so if you're telling me birth control, sure. Erectile dysfunction, not so sure. I mean, you really need to take Viagra every day. I'm not so sure. Like hair loss, great. The, the problem is the costs of launching DDC brands has gone down so much. It's not, a, I mean, in, in the grand scheme of things, that's an amazing thing. And there's so much more competition and so much more, as a consumer, you have more products available at a higher quality and lower price than ever before. As an investor, though, often it kind of becomes a, a race to the bottom on company up price and a, and, a, and a race to the top of increasing the CPCs in Google and Facebook and Instagram. And there's an amount of serendipity and luck in which brands hit. And so it's hard to make the economics work. And, and as a... Yeah, numbers-driven investor. There's very few DDC brands that I think are compelling enough that they make sense to to invest in because the because the, it's just too easy to launch a competitor that can, and, and and too many of them get funded and the economics are not great. 
is it fair to say you only want to invest in businesses that have a high frequency or high AOV? Or I, Correct. You- oh, absolutely. You need, you need one of those two things, I believe, because otherwise the economics don't work. If you have, if you have low frequency and low AOV, you're, you're, you're just not going to be able to, re- to recoup your CAC because there's very few businesses that can actually grow without having paid acquisition. Is this why a model like Homejoy didn't work? Or did they, did they just absolutely in advance or they thought they yeah, could? Home, yeah, correct. Home, Homejoy didn't have enough recurrence and had a low enough AOV. And there's another problem with Homejoy, which the – so the ideal marketplace design is one where you have a non-monogamous relationship with a supplier, meaning uh, you, know, you have a different Uber driver every time. And maybe the Uber driver would like to, to drive you everywhere, but the problem is that's not what you want because it's not going to be available – when you want at all times. And so, the, whereas if you have a, someone cleaning your house, it's actually different because you need to trust them, they do a good job, and, and it's the same person coming over and over again. Uh, they're more likely to, to disintermediate, you're more likely to disintermediate them and, and want to do a direct relationship, especially if the marketplace is taking 15 or 20%. And, and so the marketplace in these cases has to have very specific, explicit, value add to avoid this disintermediation, which Homejoy didn't provide enough value to both sides of the marketplace and had too low AOV and, and too low recurrence. And how about um, uh, when you look at uh, BP and Sprig, uh, were, were those, um, like, i.e., are there other companies who do those same things that, that will be successful at, at some point, or are those spaces just harder? No, I, but both... So two different problems. So BP's problem, frankly, was a, a, a prototypical example of they thought it was a land grab when I think it, when it wasn't. So they were like, oh, my God, there's Carvana and Shift and, and Vroom. We need to go to all these different markets as soon as possible. The reality is BP was actually a really good business in the first three cities they were in, in, in L.A. and SF and I think Tucson or Houston, one of those. They, they were doing really well. They had good economics. But then they exploded their burn uh, and grew too quickly out of control. I mean, people love the experience. And I think there are a number of ways that marketplace design that could have been better and more capital efficient. But it was actually a great product. I mean, the problem is the, yeah, it is a, a misreading of the tea leaves. I think they should have burned a lot less money, grown a lot slower, but kept nailing it and, and scaling it in result. Also, they raised too much money at too high a price. And so they were priced for perfection. And, you know, it's interesting. When you go to, to entrepreneurs, there's, if you're an entrepreneur, especially a first-time entrepreneur, there's a temptation that, you know, let's say a, a VC tells you, okay, I'll give you 10 at 40 pre, 50 posts. And the other one will tell you, I'll give you 20 at 80 pre, you know, 100 posts. And in both cases, it's the same dilution. It's 20% dilution. So you're going to be like, wait a minute, I should always take the 20 at 80 pre, 100 posts. The thing is, if, you're va- if your intrinsic value is a lot lower than that, you need to grow into that valuation. If for whatever reason you do well, but you don't actually grow into it, then you kind of screw yourself because at Dan Ryan, there might be an anti-dilution provisions. It might, it might lead to basically killing the company. And so if you don't grow into that valuation, the company might die. So BP is, I think, a combination of expending too quickly when things were at bad union economics in, in many different cities, burning too much capital, and also raising too much money at too high a price. So that had specific problems. Sprig, Sprig is um, a different problem. So Sprig was trying to, they created essentially their own kitchens, dark kitchens, and they were delivering to you in 15 minutes low-cost meals, which turns out to be an extremely expensive value prop. And at the same time, 
So it's capital intensive to build. You need to add quality control. You need to do your delivery infrastructure. And at the same time, Uber Eats started coming up and offering all these discounts in order to grow share away from uh, seamless Grubhub and, and became a viable alternative, even though maybe they didn't deliver as quickly and the food was not as good. And so Sprig, the, the, that, with that approach, was way too capital inefficient. And it's not just Sprig that died. Maple died. But are there Sprig-like products that are going to exist in the future? Uh, absolutely. I mean, what I like right now in the, in the food space is you're seeing the, the, the infrastructure is being built by specific companies. So Travis's Cloud Kitchens is creating dark kitchens on behalf of other companies. And then if you want to go and build your own food brand, and we're actually investors in a company called Mealco, which is basically a brands that are built on top of cloud kitchens, you can use that, that in existing infrastructure. So you don't actually need to go in and spend hundreds of thousands of dollars per location to, to be able to launch, uh, nor do you need to actually go and build your delivery network when you can just use uh, Uber Eats, for instance. And so the, there will be brands created on cloud kitchens in the future. It just will be way more capital efficient and actually with better economics than existed or were possible in the Sprig days. In the Sprig days, the dark kitchens didn't exist. They had to build everything on their own. And so it took tons of money. Now you can actually differentiate on things like uh, food quality, uh, menu composition, et cetera. And so that's why I'm very, very bullish on Delico. Now, same thing on the catering space, and t- taking it separately, we're investors in a Canadian ca- company called Platters uh, with a Z at the end, which is absolutely crushing it. And they're an acid light caterer. Uh, because we we were also in a um, in a in a company called Zesty in in the in the B two B catering system. I mean, food we're probably we, we've probably made fifty food investments, probably putting it out there. Uh, and so wow. platters, what I like about them is they basically in, they curate and select the the caterers in every major city, and then they provide a curated experience. Uh, to the to their large corporates that they have as clients, you know, people like Netflix um, in, in every major city. But they're asset light. Their their job is like doing the matching, picking the menus, figuring out which caterer they're going to use on which day, negotiating volume discounts, ma- making sure that the quality is great. They're really a marketplace. They're really the intermediary. What happened is the early players were doing way too much of the work and, and were way too capital intensive. Uh, it's much better if you don't actually need to be building any infrastructure uh, and actually doing the work yourself. Otherwise, you're not really a marketplace. I mean, Sprig was not really a marketplace. Totally. And do you um, prefer asset light uh, businesses as opposed to you know ones that are trying to own the entire value chain? Well, I think you can own the entire value chain and yet be asset light, meaning you can you can provide an experience where it appears that you are the provider of the service to the end user, even though you're a marketplace. So asset light, yes, I much prefer asset light businesses. Look, being asset heavy and intensive can be a massive barrier to entry. If you can raise hundreds of millions and your competitors cannot, it's something that's capital intensive. That's absolutely amazing. Uh, but the problem is it's a big if. You need the right entrepreneur. You need to be at the right the right macroeconomic cycle and time and point in time, which may change uh, for reasons out of your control. And so I, on average, yes, I much prefer asset light businesses, understanding that not everything can be built in an asset light way. Totally. And so let, let's talk about building, uh, building marketplace businesses a bit. There's, there's business model. There's, there's bringing out the chicken and the egg pro, uh, you know, problem. There's, there's go to market. 
what are your some core principles of building marketplace business in, in 2020 uh, that, that maybe have, have stayed the same or maybe are different from, from 2015 or 2010? Yeah, well, 99% of marketplaces are demand constrained. So you start with the supply. You always start with the supply. You, you, and the reason is the suppliers are financially motivated to be on the platform. The, they want to sell and they want to make money. And so you can go to them and say, hey, I'm launching this new marketplace. Today, I don't really have any volume but I'm not going to charge you anything. You will only pay me if, uh, if I successfully send you a lead or, or a client that pays you. Most people will say yes to that. So make sure that you curate and highly curate your supplies. You pick the very best suppliers and, and get going with that. Once you have that, find them a limited number of high quality demand. Now, if you're in a services marketplace, you ideally want to represent on an annual basis, like 25% or more of the income of your marketplace. So do not overload. Because it's easy to get supply, many marketplace founders have a tendency, okay, let's get every single, let's say you're building a plumber marketplace. Let's get every single plumber in New York in the marketplace. That's a recipe for disaster because you're not going to send them enough leads and enough customers, and so they're not going to be engaged and they're going to churn out of your platform or they're not going to respond. Instead, in one neighborhood, in one zip code, get the very best plumber and make sure he's engaged, make sure he has the app, make sure that every time he has a request, he replies. If you can send him a meaningful percentage of his business, he will be using you and be active. And once you've, once you've made that work, then you add another one, another one, and another one. So you always want to match your supply and your demand very carefully. It's very easy to overload your marketplace with too much supply that, that, that turns because they're not engaged or they're not active. And if they're not active, your demand side when they come is not going to have a great experience. You want the first transactions to be amazing and to set the tone and standard for how the transactions that I go forward based will continue, which usually means continuing in the philosophy of nail it before you scale it. You launch hyper-local, maybe in a zip code or a region or a neighborhood, and, and you take it from there. And I would not, I mean, look, some marketplaces are innately national or global, in which case that's fine. And it's, by the way, it's cheaper to buy traffic and, and ads on a national level than a local level. But many businesses are hyper-local, in which case really go hyper-local, like a neighborhood. Nail it there, and then you go to the next neighborhood, and then you go to the city, and then once you've gone to the city, you can go to the next city. Totally. Well, and uh, okay, so go to market. And business model, do you have any favorite uh, favorite approaches or... Yes. Uh, favorite approach these days is uh, just charge a commission. You typically charge the commission. Well, okay. Th- there it gets tricky. On average, people take 15% from the supply side. But th- the reality is you should be taking the commission of the more inelastic part of, uh, of the curve. So you should test the elasticity of demand and elasticity of supply. And the more inelastic is where you take the rate. Uh, and, and so you really need to check for price sensitivity. Uh, but on average, it's going to be 15% from the supply side, and you can maybe start at 10 and increase at 15 over time. Another favorite trick of ours, especially these days, is offer a B2B SaaS tool for free. And often, in fact, you can offer for free a SaaS tool that other people were charging for, uh, as long as you're as good, at least as good, and, and, and build a marketplace on the back of it. So an example of that is we're investors in a... UK-based company, but they're really global and they're very big in the U.S. called Fresha. Fresha, F-R-E-S-H-A, is a MindBody competitor. Now, MindBody is kind of an open table for uh, hair salons and barbers and spas, etc. And they charge you a, a, a booking fee. Now, the thing is, kind of like open table does if you're trying, getting a seat at a restaurant. 
thing is many people don't love being charged for for their own customers right like if i'm a if i if i have a regular visitor of a given spa and and they book there you don't really that that spa owner is is displeased that they're being charged for a reservation by a customer that is there so what fresh decided to do is you know what we're going to give you the same product as mind body in fact better and cloud based for free completely free and all the customers that you send our way we will not charge you for them and instead they said we will charge you when we send you new customers and we'll charge you we're going to provide you a point of sale system that's amazing and lower billing fees than anyone else because we've aggregated the volume of all of these different uh nail salons out there and they're now in the hundreds of millions of gmb per month per month and we're using a non-traditional business model and so giving away a free SaaS tool in order to lock in the supply especially is amazing i mean that's what i, I described about tcg player and my magic the gathering business they created a point of sale system for magic the gathering which they gave away for free to all the comic book stores which let them to have all the inventory we're in a way uh what uh, slice has been doing in the pizza space they've been giving they've been creating websites picking up the phone so creating call center to pick up the phone on behalf of uh, the pizza areas and doing all the work for them in order to to become their 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 web and and mobile uh, pizza ordering provider which has allowed them to have a cac of zero on the on the demand side and the consumer side so yeah, giving away a free SaaS tool that is valued and valuable for free in order to build a marketplace is definitely a trick I, we love. Totally. Uh, I want to run through a few different uh, spaces, get your get your take. Uh, these are sort of new marketplaces. So one is uh, homeschool. Uh, two is uh, childcare. Uh, three is uh, therapist and maybe even uh, you know non-trained therapist, like a listener or, or a coach. And all, yeah. all these we're talking about, you know, monogamous, non-monogamous, all of these uh, have, you know, potential for people to find their person and go off platform. But how do you, how do you think about these spaces? Yeah. So we actually looked at a lot of these. We, we thought for a long time about like creating a childcare marketplace. Um, we, we, and we really thought of like, does this category make sense or not? And we, we couldn't find, we couldn't quite make the economics work. I think if I recall correctly, when we looked at the economics of like, if you wanted the location or someone that had, that had a premise, if they could, take care of one or multiple kids, you know, how do we get it to work? It, 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 we, we never got there because the, on the high end, there were people that would just hire people directly or was maybe paid by, by sort of really high end employers on the low end, you were competing with like daycare. And so if you want to create a light, if there's no if super effective way to create asset like daycare or childcare, we're like, okay, maybe we do it in people's homes, but for that, we need to get them certified. How do we get them certified? Once they're certified, do they need us? And so we couldn't quite crack the, the, how do we create a lock-in system and provide enough value that we are there? Um, once we, especially once we find them, the, the underlying customer. So, couldn't couldn't make quite that make that work. We we looked by by the way to elderly care uh, as well. We were investors in a few of them. They kind of all died uh, once the California legislation came into place, and they worked on on a business model perspective as ten ninety nines, but they didn't work as W twos. Um, and so all of them like home, not uh, whatever they called but like I can't remember the names right now. But Home Hero and a few others like they all died. So there, so first of all, therapist is a great example of like, there are many forms of therapy, right? You have physical therapy, uh, red large, and there's a company, I guess, out of LA called Coology, which is doing reasonably well. You have therapists as in um, um, psychology type 
things. And you have uh, Talkspace, which is absolutely crushing as far as I can tell uh, in, in, in the category, given that you can, you can get a, a therapist for if you're doing it remotely for cheaper than you're doing that than if you're doing it in person and i think they've started being finding a way to get paid so therapy the key success factor there if i recall correctly is actually getting reimbursed by by insurance because most people can't afford it can't afford it to go go forward basis so the it's too expensive at 100 bucks an hour 200 bucks an hour for most people to afford and and it's not covered by everyone but if you can get it, it, it some of them were trying to demonstrate the value of providing it to the employers for instance by like decreasing uh absenteeism and increasing productivity and and it's and if it started being covered it started making sense so therapy and and there's specific types of therapy especially on the physical therapy side where the the cost benefit analysis completely was like really clear. Like a lot of people, I, I can't remember his back pain, but like the very specific types of problems people face, uh, where therapy made made sense. We haven't yet invested in the, um, any of the categories. We Talkspace became in it's too. I mean, it's not too late in general. I haven't looked at the economics of late, but and now it's late stage. So it's less likely for the type of stuff we would do. The others, uh, you know, we we got close to a few. We haven't pulled the trigger yet, but I could see marketplaces working there. And homeschooling, hmm. I mean, clearly a monogamous relationship on a go-forward basis to the extent you have one tutor for a child, especially in the early ages. If it's multiple tutors, less of an issue. I don't know how, large, how big the market is, so what the TAM is. You know, you, you know what's interesting? Like, if I think of, like, what is the future of education? Well, first of all, what are the easiest parts, components of education to disrupt? And I suspect continuing education it's probably the first place it's going to be disrupted because it's a little bit ridiculous that we, and you know, you finish college and you're whatever, 22, 23, and that's it. You never get more education, even though the world is changing so quickly out there. And so having online courses um, in order to complement your, your, your learning makes a lot of sense, right? Like imagine you came out and you were ahead of marketing in a startup in 2000. Well, you were probably doing display ads, you know, later you had to do, SCM on Google, then you had to do Facebook, then you had to do Instagram, then you had to do the video ads on YouTube, etc. I mean, that, that, that world has completely changed. And so you need to update your skill set as it goes forward. And so I see the, the what, you, what Teachable is creating and what, um, uh, I think it's Udemy or Udemy, uh, or, and what, I um, can't remember the name of the company that was bought by uh, LinkedIn that creates like uh, corporate Linda? videos. Linda. Linda, yeah. So Linda, to me, that makes a lot of sense. It's probably easier to disrupt than the existing schooling. So homeschooling is kind of a way like, okay, I'm not satisfied with the current way the K-12 education system works. I'm going to create an alternative. The problem is that downsides in the sense that your kids are not socialized. And so I, I, don't, I wonder how big that ends up being. Whether in order for the marketplace to work, I think, in that category, you'd probably want to provide a lot of value to the parent to make sure that the experience that they're using, that they're getting from their tutor is, is, is on track with the rest. So as long as, because you're right, it is a monogamous relationship, but that said, if you can prove to the parent, look, that tutor is actually teaching in line with what scholars are going to be expecting in the future. Their kid is ahead in this, aligned in this. Uh, we should probably complement this with this other form of tutoring, et cetera. Then there's a value in continuing to, to pay you 
Um, and it probably means your take rate has to be limited. It has to be something like 10%. And maybe you're doing payroll processing on behalf of their behalf. And therefore, it, it's, it's, it's valuable. So yeah, I, I think it could work there. Uh, I don't know what the TAM is. Um, I don't know how big, how many people are going to be willing to pay for homeschooling for their kids, right? So I think, I think TAM and, uh, might be more my issue there. Um, and I don't think it's the long-term solution, right? The long-term solution as a country is we need to, we need to fix your K-12 education. Totally. And I'm curious for what other spaces, you mentioned childcare earlier that you maybe considered incubating or got close to, uh, but, uh, just couldn't, couldn't quite get there. You know, I'm, I'm curious if you, if you've looked at, you know, uh, or, or whether some of them might be in education or healthcare or public services, construction, or, or some other, what are some spaces you, you almost you got excited about, but couldn't quite pull the trigger on? Well, as an investor, we ended up doing a lot of construction because uh, construction is really broken, both B2B and B2C. And so we ended up doing marketplaces to find your general contractor, marketplaces for architects to find contracts. So not just you as an individual, we've done, uh, we've done uh, a marketplace for, contractors to order products to to be delivered the same day so you you're on a construction site you run out of two by fours that company will call toolbox tool bx will go and uh and 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 find it for you we're in a dump truck driver marketplace so you need uh you need to remove all the debris from your construction site uh and tread uh t-r-e-a-d will 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 take care of that for you uh so construction we we've really started going down the path um because it's a user experience that's completely broken for everyone, and and, and there's willingness to be too for it to be fixed. And it also falls in why now and the businesses that are now being taken over by millennials who want to start digitalizing their businesses. And so we invested also in Toolbox, Box uh, in the category. No, so so construction we've done we're doing a lot right now. Um, in other categories that that we've done a lot in uh, that. Probably for similar so what is logistics? We were early in Flexport, but we've done um, Freight Walla, which is like kind of freight forwarder in India. We've done uh, companies like Logistics Exchange, information and, and improvement of people's internal supply chains. Uh, um, so that we've done a lot. Education, healthcare, and public services, not so much. It's it's harder to attack regulated markets because the the regulators are very slow, and 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 they're not necessarily trying to optimize for either extraordinary outcomes or efficiency. And so, I like disrupting education at the edges rather than the core, because like you don't need to get approvals from the teachers' unions or get a public school budgets, etc. Um, and same thing on healthcare. Um, what I clear, you know, it, what's interesting is you're seeing things. I mean, we we'd invest in Parsley Health. I like things like One Medical and Forward, and also like the fact that many more and more people are wearing Apple Watches and Fitbit, providing a massive slew of data that currently actually is not really used by the public, the the medical profession at large, but we are using ourselves. And especially in our world of of entrepreneurs and VCs, everyone's like kind of biohacking. We're all like tracking our sleep, tracking our calories eaten, trying different diets, like, and and, and improving your health outcomes. So my intuition is, so I'd like that approach of like doing it bottoms up, like disrupting them at the edges until the point that, 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 that it has no point, no choice, but like infecting the core in a way. Like it doesn't make sense that every, there's so much pen and paper, like still in processes in, in medical offices. So we actually considered, for instance, creating a, a, 
medical records company that would be like that would, would we be managing it on behalf of current doctor's offices because you go to the doctors and it's so ineffective inefficient like every time you go in refill and all the same papers then they have like multiple people at the front desk all they do is like take those papers file them in file insurance claims sending to medicaid I mean, it's like it's ridiculous like the medical claims processing business how inefficient it is uh, but ultimately we didn't quite we couldn't quite get there for a variety of reasons but I, I can't wait for that, for someone to digitize that. Totally. Uh, are, do you think there's an opportunity to build a big company in the dating space? Or how have you reviewed that, uh, that marketplace opportunity? Oh, yeah. So when I was talking about why I didn't like the job sites, because their job is to lose their clients by finding them great jobs. It's the same reason I don't love the dating sites. Because if they do a good job, they find you a girlfriend or a boyfriend, and then you, they lose you. And 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 if they and and if you end up breaking up, they often have to reacquire you. So the problem is the churn is pretty high. I think the average lifespan of a user on a dating site is like six months, because I'm, because they do a pretty good job actually. I mean, many people find their significant other and their life partner and get married for people they meet on dating sites. And so, it, it, it you build pretty high revenue businesses, and maybe you create especially in the early days you have like interesting viral loops but i don't like the churn component of these businesses i don't know what the cac ltv is so yeah you can build a, a, a multi-billion dollar business i'm not sure you could build a 20 billion dollar business let alone a 100 billion dollar business um so yeah no, look i i like businesses where the better job the business does the more they use you right so Uber, year one, you use it four times a month. Year two, you use it five times a month. Year six, four, you use it 16 times a month. Plus, you started ordering on Uber Eats. And so the revenue per user per month keeps going up and up and up. Who knows where the ultimate unit economics are? The problem with the dating side where like, oh, I met someone I really liked and I got off the dating side. And maybe you get back on in the future, et cetera. But like the ultimate value they extract from you is pretty limited. So I don't love, it is a, it is a marketplace, but I don't love it for the kind of the same reason I don't love the job sites. Uh, I, I like it better in the staffing businesses because you keep finding people good jobs and then you, you earn a percentage of their income on a go forward basis uh, as opposed to you lose them forever or for, for multiple years at least. Totally. And so maybe in closing, what's your, what's your request for startups besides uh, rig up? Are there vertical uh, jobs, uh, verticals that you're, that you are excited about despite your skepticism or are other, what other spaces in B2B or, or perhaps more broadly that you, uh, you want to invest in or see more entrepreneurs build in? Yeah. I, I mean, look, I, so first of all, jobs, we've done a lot of the vertical jobs and staffing, right? Like uh, we're, in, we're in trusted health and, and uh, for nurses, we're in, in a way like Nero is a photographer marketplace. It's also so a lot of these. So no, we're happy to see, if you're building a marketplace, frankly, you should reach out to us, period. I mean, they, they, we are the, the premier global marketplace investors. Um, and it, it really doesn't matter the, the industry, the category, frankly, even the geography for that matter. Um, though we do prefer typically larger markets, but the if you and especially if you meet one of our thesis, um, whether it's a vertical or a marketplace spec model or a B two B, you should reach out. And there's no specific industry or category we're looking at. It's really for us, it's business model specific. If you're building a marketplace, we want to talk to you. Awesome. Well, that's a uh, that's a great place to great place to close. Fabrice, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This has been a this has been a great episode. And and for people who do want to talk to you, uh, where, where where should they reach out, or uh, where can they learn more about uh, FJ Labs? You can find a whole bunch of uh, stuff that I write about and think about on my blog, which is FabriceGrinda.com. 
you can go to fglabs.com. Not sure how much content is there, but the portfolio is there. Um, and um, reach out to me on LinkedIn. It's probably the easiest way, but I'm usually easy to find. Uh, we do, if you find somehow my email and you send us a cold email, we will review it, especially if you're doing a marketplace. So we're, we're pretty open and very easy to find. Awesome. Fabrice, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. It's been a great episode. Thank you for having me. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.